you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd encourage you to open it uh, to Mark chapter 4. We uh, are back into the Gospel of Mark this morning, and we find ourselves uh, at the end of uh, Mark chapter 4. I just want to say for the few weeks that we were out, uh, I think I mentioned this last week, we just want to say again, I appreciate so much uh, Rob uh, filling the pulpit and Jeff the following week. Uh, Thank you very much for that. Uh, We were glad to be away, but uh, glad to be back. This morning we uh, are returning to our journey through the Gospel of Mark, and it's important uh, for us to remember that this is the first Gospel account. Uh, Mark is a uh, raconteur. Uh, He is recounting uh, the eyewitness testimony of the Apostle Peter uh, as he writes uh, his Gospel. He's writing uh, to the persecuted church uh, in Rome. So the things that he has to say particularly have impact, not only on seeing Jesus clearly, but on what it looks like for us to live for him uh, in a world full of difficulty. Having begun his account with a power-packed prologue where he uh, no holds barred, doesn't hold anything back, helps us to know who Jesus Christ is, uh, he then shows us that Jesus began his ministry in Galilee. And in this first act, Uh, Jesus began preaching the good news of the inbreaking dominion of God. That is, that uh, that the world, which is uh, the domain of the prince of the power of the air, uh, that in the coming of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God is about to burst in uh, and take over. Now, we've yet to see it fully take over, but rest assured, we sit here today as followers of Jesus Christ, whose lives have been transformed by the good news uh, of his grace. Uh, The kingdom is coming. Uh, This led to a confrontation as as Jesus is preaching. He's demonstrating uh, the proof of who he is by his exousia, the Greek word power. It means innate power. It's not something you can get a degree for. It's not something that you apprentice for. It's something uh, that is a part of his person, uh, and it captivates the masses. It also offends uh, the religious and political leaders. So as that ministry is unfolding, we lead up to a place where uh, they have committed themselves to destroy Jesus. Mark then slowed down the action with uh, an elaborate explanation of the teaching of Jesus about the kingdom of God, and that's where we've been uh, in recent weeks. And having concluded this discourse, Mark is now going to return us to the action. Mark seems uh, quick to want to prevent his readers from thinking that Jesus is limited to theory uh, rather than practice. So with today's passage and over the next few weeks, we are again thrown into a series of conflicts, and in this case, Uh, His adversaries are far more formidable uh, than his earthly opponents, his human opponents. I want to begin with prayer and and then start uh, with a question. Father God, we ask as we look to your word uh, that you would speak to us. We believe uh, that this is your message to us, that you have revealed yourself to us uh, most in the person and work of Jesus Christ And you have given to us the pages of Scripture that our lives might be instructed unto righteousness. And so we pray this morning that you would impart afresh and anew the work of the Holy Spirit uh, to take what is deposited uh, through our ears and in our minds and that you would drive it, Holy Spirit, deep into our hearts that we might live for you, that we might know you. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. The question I want to begin with is, who is God? We just spent uh, about half an hour singing songs uh, about who we believe God to be, and hopefully uh, you sang them uh, with uh, an informed heart and with a convicted mind, and you gave your best, even if you don't feel like you have uh, a voice to sing, that, that you gave your best to acknowledge the goodness of God. 
But the question, who is God, is not something uh, that we answer uh, on a Sunday morning when we're singing. The question, uh, who is God, tends to be answered uh, in the difficulties of life. Now, that question may seem too philosophical or esoteric for you, maybe too lofty or over your head. Or maybe you sit here this morning and it's a question that is simply answered. But whether we give ample consideration to the question, whether it seems easy to answer or not, that question is the quintessential question of all of human life. It is the question put plainly before every man, woman, or child who will ever live in this world. To answer that question correctly uh, in this life affords us many good things that the world cannot contend with. There's nothing in the world that can deliver to us uh, an accurate answer to that question. And then scripture cautions us to defer, to defer that question till after this life is over. It doesn't exempt us from answering that question, and it also doesn't lead to blessing, it leads to loss. In his book, uh, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. How many of you believe that? How many of you would say, that's my go-to, like, like I tell people, hey, what I think about God is the most important thing about me? It is. Uh, it's the, the person who's discovered how to answer the question, who is God? Uh, and if you answer that question, who is God, then it will have a disproportionate effect on the way we live, and then especially, most importantly, during times where we face the unexpected or when we're going through things over which we have no control Even when we feel like we've answered that question, life will bring us back to it. So we need to be certain that we've answered it correctly. Scripture says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Our problem is that we cannot know God. We, We cannot, in and of ourselves, know God. The the truth is that apart from God choosing to reveal himself to us, we cannot know him. The Bible uh, is the revelation, the self-disclosure of God, who God is, to the world that he made. We were meant to know God. We were meant to exist in a relationship with him. But we are utterly dependent upon God to reveal himself to us. Though God has been working throughout human history since uh, the beginning, Scripture ultimately points us to the person of Jesus Christ as we seek to answer that question, who is God? John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, that is Jesus, has made him known to us. And this is the aim of Mark in writing his gospel, to confront us with the person and the work of Jesus Christ and lead us to a place where we cannot remain neutral. We must make a decision, who is God? And Mark wants to point us to the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this is where we find ourselves in Mark's gospel. Jesus has just uh, has begun to shift his focus away from uh, the masses, the aklos, the crowd, Uh, And he's now beginning to uh, invest more toward the mathetes, the disciples. Uh, We said that that word means uh, a follower, a learner, or a student. Uh, Now, these are the 12 that Jesus has chosen to be most intimately with him, but it also includes uh, a larger group who've chosen to tag along because they're optimistic. They have hope that Jesus is the Messiah. They've formed some thoughts 
or opinions about Jesus, seeing him, seeing what he does, but they do not yet understand who he is. They do not know him. They do not possess a confident faith in him. They are being confronted with our question, who is God? And as each of us must, we must discover that we can only rightly come to know Jesus as he discloses himself to us in the realities and eventualities of our lives with all of its problems and potentials. Uh, Theologian James Edwards writes in his commentary, the right judgment of Jesus can't be made by following convention. Jesus supersedes the powers of nature, demons, illness, death, and family influence. Confining Jesus with such categories and stereotypes is is to misunderstand him. Acknowledging his supremacy to such categories is the first act of discipleship. And this is where we pick up our story. John, uh, Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. On that day, uh, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said one to another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's been a long day of ministry. Jesus has been teaching the crowds in parables, in uh, the mass among the aklas, and then in private, uh, he's been explaining those parables uh, to his mathetes, to his disciples, the insiders. Jesus is probably wanting, as he is oft apt to do, wanting to get away to get some rest with his closest followers. But this is also a transitional passage in nature. Jesus is depicted as going across into a foreign, even pagan, territory. Mark is using the story symbolically, uh, the first of several crossings that Jesus will make, to show that Jesus is intentionally extending his reach. He's not just looking for rest, he's extending his reach. As he said uh, in the beginning of Mark, I have come to preach, showing that this Jesus is not just the healer of Israel. He is taking his message to predominantly Gentile territories because he has come to be the redeemer of the world. Verse 36, or sorry, verse 35, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, read this with me, let us go across to the other side. Let's try that again. He said to them, let us go across to the other side. Verse 36, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with them. Mark has a singular aim uh, in writing. It is to focus us on the person of Jesus Christ. We've, we've talked about how we rarely hear from the disciples, but this is one of those occasions. And, and the reason for Mark shifting his focus, uh, at least momentarily, is so that he can tell the story from their perspective, and that is for our benefit. What we will see in this passage is that they took him. They woke him. They said to one another, uh, the curious phrase, they took him just as he was, uh, is likely uh, reflects Peter's memory directly, remembering that, that Jesus hadn't changed, that he hadn't gotten out of the boat. It was just immediately he wanted to cross over, and so they went. 
And this is to show that we are not merely making study of an exemplary life in isolation. Like, Jesus is superlative. Like, you can't study anyone Jesus. But the point that Mark is drawing us to is to recognize the singular impact of that life on others. Now, the setting is the Sea of Galilee. I told you before, the Sea of Galilee is a freshwater lake that is 7 miles by 13 miles. It sits 690 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded by hills and mountains. Just 30 minutes to the northeast of the Sea of Galilee is Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon rises to 9,200 feet above sea level. And so the interchange between cold air rushing off Mount Hermon and warm air rising up off the Sea of Galilee creates a, 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 a phenomenon of weather conditions that turns that little lake, that little sea, into a turbulent place in the evening and overnight. So verse 37, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. We'll stop there. Uh, that phrase, a great windstorm, uh, it translate, translates a furious quall. Uh, the Greek uh, can mean hurricane. Uh, stories of Galilean fishermen, even to this day, refer to it as shakira, which is an Arabic word for shark. In 1992, the storm generated 10-foot-high waves on the lake of the Sea of Galilee, causing flooding and damage to the city of Tiberias. Uh, this was just such a storm. And the disciples, many of whom were seasoned fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, would be well familiar with this circumstance. Now, this is ironically the only place in the Gospels where we hear of Jesus sleeping during a storm. Characteristic of Mark's portrayal of Jesus Christ, we see Jesus most human here, and yet at the same time, most divine and mysterious. Mark wishes to make clear the fully human identity of Jesus Christ, especially before uh, the miracle he is about to perform. There is no passage in the New Testament that more succinctly contrasts the humanity of Christ uh, dramatically with his deity. And Mark's recounting of the story uh, reflects sophisticated theological thought because he parallels it closely with the story of Jonah in the Old Testament, a prophet sent by God on a mission. Jonah was sent to the Ninevites, Gentile people. Jesus has come both for the Jew and the Gentile. Jonah is running from God, but Jesus has come to fulfill what God has given him to do. Both are found asleep on the boat in the middle of a storm. Both are woken up out of frustration by the other people on the boat because they don't understand how someone could sleep in these conditions. Jonah is awoken and he knows immediately what's wrong. It's him. And so he tells them to cast him over. The disciples wake Jesus up hoping that he has a solution. They're just not ready for what Jesus is about to do. He has a solution. It's not about throwing him overboard. We'll see that in just a moment. We'll continue to see uh, the, the contrast with Jesus and Jonah. Uh, go back to verse 38. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? The disciples' wording here is not born of respect. That's the way we think of it when someone calls Jesus teacher. Rather, it's born of a reproach. They are shocked. They're perplexed. They're frustrated that Jesus is still sleeping while, uh, as though he seemingly doesn't care while their lives are being threatened. There's a charge of a dereliction of duty. How could this one who's been doing all these miracles be asleep on the job at the hour we need him most? The scene depicts Jesus uh, complete trust in the sovereignty of God against uh, the panic of the disciples who don't yet know God. 
Jesus knows the Father. He knows that he has no need as the creator of fearing a natural storm. He can sleep in the worst case scenario. But not you and I, not like the disciples. We don't know the Father the way Jesus knows the Father. And this is interesting because the disciples have witnessed Jesus' love and concern manifest to many people so far already. They have watched Jesus leverage his exousia to rescue people from that which threatens their lives. And yet in this moment, it's quite another matter when it's their lives that are affected. Isn't that how we are? Like we can give good advice, we can give good counsel to other people when they're going through difficult times, but when it's our turn, it's hard for us to remember that God is sovereign, that God loves us, that he's for us. Uh, this, this signals to us that, that what the disciples believe about Jesus to this point, uh, whatever uh, they think about him, there's a disconnect between their affection and adoration and also uh, and their depth of belief or ability to trust him, especially in the face of life's trials. What's taken them by surprise is quite intentional by the Creator. When Jesus said, let us go to the other side, he knew full well what was going to happen and the purposes for which it was about to happen. Jesus is about to reveal himself to them in a powerful, need-meeting way. This is the only way, uh, or this is what it means, rather, to know God. To enter a storm and to find that he is reliable. James, the half-brother of Jesus, is going to write later, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The disciples had gone to rabbinical school. They knew something of the scriptures, even if their education had halted. They simply uh, had not connected what was in their heads with what was, uh, it needed to be in their hearts. A passage like Psalm 107, uh, which begins in uh, verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the, uh, the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They needed... They, they kneeled and reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. When they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their uh, de desired haven, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. The disciples no doubt had, had read Psalm 107 before. They were probably familiar with hearing that read in synagogue, but there was a disconnect, as there often is for us, between what we think and how we feel, how we believe uh, in the midst of difficulty. In response to the desperation of his disciples, Jesus is about to accomplish a literal fulfillment of Psalm 107. But the scale of what Jesus does is overwhelming to them. Verse 39, And he, that is Jesus, awoke and rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. This is the first of Jesus' uh, nature miracles. Control over the elements is more uh, extraordinary and inexplicable than the restoration of someone's lame hand, or someone who has leprosy, or someone who has an issue of blood. 
we know this quickly because we know how vulnerable we are, even in our day of advanced technology when it comes to meteorological events. We are victims of nature out of control. We are powerless to do anything about it. And yet here is this one who speaks and nature responds. Jesus treats the storm like a personified force of evil. He speaks to it as though it were a person. It's interesting because in Jewish thinking, the sea was often a natural dwelling place for the demonic and for evil spirits. The word be quiet comes from the same word that Jesus has already used in Mark to silence demons. He says, be quiet, peace, be still. We have an enemy, it bears reminding. John 10.10 says that, comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and it's something that's been front of mind and on my heart of late because it seems too few of us recognize the enemy at work. And when we do not recognize that the enemy wants to exploit us, then we tend to view each other as opponents. Church, we have to be cunning enough, wise enough to recognize that this domain, though, though the victory has been achieved at the cross, there is still an enemy who wants to undo what God wants to do in your life and in the church. I don't know if you've seen the popular meme, but it says when Satan whispers from the storm, you tell him, I am the storm. I got news for you. You're not the storm. You're, you're no match for an adversary that Michael the archangel wouldn't even argue with to dispute over the body of Moses. Jesus, Jesus is the storm. Jesus is the one that we need in the midst of the storm. He is the answer to an enemy who wants to undermine our lives, and we desperately need to remember that. Now, this is Mark's second use of the word megas, the word great. The first time he uses it, it's natural. There's a, a great windstorm. The second, though, is supernatural. Jesus speaks, and something great happens. A great stillness, a great peace comes over the waters. It is both immediate as Jesus' exousia always is, it is both immediate and absolute. Um, if you go out to Blue Mesa and stand on the shore, wait for a boat to come by, when a boat comes by and it's almost out of sight, the effects of that boat in the water will still be hitting the shore. That is not what happened here. It was a miracle. The, the sea was raging in a storm that was taking the boat down, and Jesus spoke, and everything stopped. Complete peace and stillness. Theologian Painter writes, Between the great storm of wind and the great calm, the dynamic word of Jesus is interposed. What set you free from your sin? What applied the merit of Christ upon the cross before the judgment seat of the Father that you would be forgiven, adopted, and set free it was the word of the Son that he would stand in your place, that he paid a price that you could not pay, that the Father was giving you to him and no one could pluck you out. Edward says the grateful change is affected not by prayer or incantation. Jonah rises and says, throw me overboard and then pray. Jesus simply speaks. It's the authoritative word of Jesus, just as God produced order from chaos in Genesis 1. Verse 40, and then he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus answers his first question with 
the second. They are afraid because they don't have faith. This is the second rebuke. Jesus rebukes the storm, and then he rebukes the disciples. Jesus accuses the disciples, in fact, of being cowards. That's what the word afraid is translated as, cowards or timid of spirit. This makes clear that they do not yet have the requisite faith that leads to salvation. Uh, But it does suggest that Jesus anticipates that they are going to have such faith uh, and understanding of his identity before long. Now, there's a situational irony here because the character in the story seems oblivious to something that the reader already knows or already thinks we know. We think we know the answer to the question, who is God? For Mark, the key point is that the man who will be later crucified is the man who, without prayer to God or urging in God's name, successfully commands the wind and the sea. He is a divine man who represents the one true God. But Mark is perhaps almost as concerned about revealing the disciple's secret, the clues to what makes for a real disciple, as he is the messianic secret. Verse 41, they respond to Jesus, or they respond to his rebuke. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is a different fear than the fear of the storm. The fear here is the Greek word phobos. We get phobia from it. Phobos megas. A far greater fear than they felt for the storm. Such fear, unlike cowardice in verse 40, is the appropriate response of humans to the display of divine power and glory. Fear, a perplexing sense of awe and wonder, is the natural response of fallen human beings in the face of who God is. We see it in Moses before the burning bush. We see it in Isaiah caught up into the temple and Paul on the road to Damascus. And when we encounter the the true identity of God, there is nothing left to do but to yield to him. So many of us have a concept of a relationship with God where we take a little bit of Jesus. We like the idea that we're not going to spend eternity separated from him, but we still want to control our lives. We still want to own who we are. But to really, truly come to know God is to yield your life to him. This is what the disciples are headed for. It's interesting because the presence of the creator in the boat, to realize that the creator is in the boat with them is more terrifying to them than what they faced outside the boat in a storm. Do you have this concept of God? The scripture says fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If, if we don't have a, a sense of reverence for who he is, then we may not fully understand who he is. This is the beginning of faith. Such awe in the revelation of God to us produces the one question that makes faith possible. Who is God? To believe means to rely upon God and his might in such a way that one positively expects to encounter it again and again in the person of Jesus. Here's the main point of this passage. Jesus leads his followers into storms to test their faith that it might be rooted in his person and not merely based upon our preferences or our perceptions. And that brings us to the question, how does the disciples' encounter with Jesus fit into our own lives. Mark invites us to draw one conclusion about Jesus. 
It's the same one that the disciples are in the process of drawing themselves, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God's son, that he is king, that he reigns over the forces of nature and chaos, over the powers of darkness, over sickness, disease, sorrow, and even death, that Jesus is Lord. Yet to know this requires more than just taking Jesus as he was. At this present moment, at any given moment, there's much more about the Savior King that you do not presently know or understand. And there remains much that he must continue to do in our lives if we are to reflect who he is. If the dissonance between what's in our heads and what's in our heart and what gets expressed in our experience, between what we believe and how we behave, if that is to be brought into alignment, then one, Jesus must lead you into storms. It was Jesus' idea to go into the storm. And contrary to the way we, we like to think about our lives, some of the storms that we wind up in are the result of our own sin and foolishness, but sometimes our Savior leads us into storms. Contrary to what we might think, he wasn't always about uh, fixing the disciples' problems. He sent them into situations where they were in over their head so that they would come back to knowing who he was and that he was all they needed. Ironically, Peter, who Mark is echoing here, writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. We are living in a world that is at war, and we are the objects of the enemy of God. He wants to undermine us. And yet, if we are to have confident trust, even in the face of life's worst storms, then God must teach us that he is reliable, that he is faithful, that he's for us. We have to learn to trust him. Why is this? Well, because the human tendency is to not need God when everything is going the way I want it to be. If life just goes according to my preferences, to my perceptions of what it means to be a child of God, then I will not be ready for the storms of life. And so our Savior lovingly leads us there. This is why the doctrine of suffering is so important. Because God is not just about your, your delight and your blessing in this life. He's preparing you for eternity. And in order to get there, you must walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and storms are what prepare your faith for that hour. Chuck Swindoll says, for every one person that God uses success or blessing to mold, he uses difficulty and hardship on the other 99. Can I get an amen? Not because he doesn't love us, but because we have a, an idealized concept of who he is and, and what he feels toward us that doesn't meet with who he is. He's not just our friend. He's, he's not just a, a dispenser of blessings in the sky. He is the God of all creation. He speaks and things happen. And you desperately need to know that in the midst of whatever trials and sufferings you walk through. He wants to root our faith in the only thing that is worthwhile. Him. Second, Jesus must test our faith to prove it true. There are two issues at stake in this passage. The first is that beneath the veneer of their devotion, the disciples were doubting that Jesus really cared for them. Has this ever happened to you? When you don't get the job promotion? When things aren't going well in your marriage? 
When you have a kid who goes off the deep end, when, when life takes a turn for the worse, you find yourself asking this question, does he not see me? Does he not care? After having watched Jesus now as they have in his ministry unfolding, they knew who Jesus was. They knew that he was compassionate toward people, and yet in the midst of their own difficulty, they actually thought, maybe he doesn't care about us. It's the cruelest question, and yet it is the one we are so easily prone to ask when things aren't going our way. God, don't you care? Sinclair Ferguson wrote in his book on Mark, it was the cruelest question they could have asked because the very reason he was in the boat, indeed in the world, and the reason he was going to die upon the cross for them was precisely because he cared for them. Are we any different when storms hit our life? Have we come to know God so thoroughly that our hearts rest in peace and we never question his goodness for us, that, that he must have a purpose and where he is leading me. No, most often the storm arises and we doubt his love. Uh, the second problem we see in, or the second issue we see in the passage is that the shallowness of their commitment left them, the disciples, failing to trust God's word. Failing to trust Jesus' word. Whose idea was it to cross the sea? It was Jesus. If Jesus said, we're going to do something, like if Jesus says, I'm, I saved you, like I, I paid for your sin. If, if Jesus said it, it's done. There's, there's no second guessing, there's no doubting, there's no questioning, but we do that because we don't yet fully trust him. It's like the old bumper sticker that said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. You can drop out the I believe it because it really doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. When God says it, that settles it. And when Jesus says, I want to go to the other side, he had every intention of getting to the other side. They just failed to trust his word. This is why it is so important. This is so instructive for our lives. This is why it's so important for you to be a person of the book. Because unless you're in the scriptures for yourself, it doesn't matter how much I am for you. It doesn't matter how much your life group leader is for you. It doesn't matter how much your spouse is for you. Unless you are in the book, then you don't have anything to draw upon in the seasons of life when you need it most, where the Holy Spirit can say, hey, let me take this promise and remind you of it. I will never leave you or forsake you. That you can entrust to me uh, that which you've committed to me against that day, I will keep it. I will save you to the uttermost. These are the, the things that God's word gives to us that we must hold on to. Isaiah 40. <clears throat> Isaiah 40 says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not <clears throat> faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall, shall feel exhausted, ex exhausted. This all begins out of doubting that God sees me. And this passage is familiar to us all. But they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Did I tell you the devil is alive and well? 
Third, last thought. Tested faith is proven true when it is predicated solely upon God's glory. Listen, brothers and sisters, it is dangerous for our faith to be built on our preferences or our perceptions. Don't trust your heart. The heart, the scripture says, is is desperate and wicked. Who can know it? We must trust God. We must vest ourselves in trusting what he says is true. Jesus calmed the storm. He's in the business of doing that. Sometimes he makes the storm go away. Sometimes he just reminds you that he's in the boat with you, that he will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus Christ is subduing the powers of darkness and restoring order over the chaos of this sin-stained world. Perhaps the most important thing for disciples at that moment was that they got to see the majesty and power and glory of Jesus Christ. Saw it for themselves. You need to see it for yourself. In time, the disciples will move from taking Jesus as he was to taking him for who he is. They're going to answer the question, who then is this? And once they do, when they do, when we do, we will discover a true north. We will discover a navigational bearing that will stand true for time and eternity. Have you truly answered that question? Jesus not only declared his deity, he demonstrated powerfully through his miracles. That kind of supernatural power over creation repeatedly demonstrated by Jesus Christ throughout his ministry, has only one explanation. Jesus Christ is God. John 1.3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1.16 says of Jesus, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, and for him. The bottom line for our lives from this passage is that if you know faith, if you have no fear. If you have no faith, then you will know fear. Fear has a way of wiping out faith, which is why we must press to know him with all of our might. But if you know faith, if you, know, if you know Jesus, then you will need a fear. The question we walk away with today is, do you rest in Jesus in moments of crisis and uncertainty? If you don't, then it might be worth considering that there's still yet more for you to know about the work of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 8, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Every test and trial, including microphones, every storm in life, large or small, is just another opportunity for us to see the glory of Jesus Christ, to know him and to discover his power for our living. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you 
that you are for us. How could we ever doubt in the midst of a storm that you don't see us or that you don't care? You've spared no expense to make it possible that we might be brought from dead to life, to be forgiven and to be adopted into your family. I pray, Father, that we would not be content to stay merely at the shallow end of faith's pool, but that we would walk with you through the seasons of life, learning time and time again that you are a God who controls all things, that we need not fear, for you are sovereign over us. We ask, Father, for those who do not know you, that we would live in such a way that they might reliably see what it looks like for a life to be surrendered to you. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.